Well, my name is Don Knox. I'm one of the elders here at Ambassador. My wife and I also serve with Crew, formerly Campus Crusade for Christ, one of the missionaries that the church supports. We're going to continue our work through 1 John. For my family, if you know our family, you might find us on any random Saturday or Sunday, or perhaps some evening at 10 or 10.30 at night, circled around a table with a board game, or these days maybe all on a different computer, in different homes, different countries, playing kind of high caliber, high strategy board games. Uh, now, I'm not talking about games like Candyland or Monopoly or even Risk. Uh, not even Settlers of Catan, though we call that the gateway drug. That's a gateway game into these kind of high strategy, high level strategy games. They're rather, games like Wingspan and Dominion, Viticulture, Splendor, Tapestry, and sometimes, though not my favorite, Sight, which might take us five to six hours to play. Now, if you know my family, you also might, and you know me, you might think, Don, wait a minute, why do you play those games? In light of your family, one person working on a PhD, one person working on a MDiv, one person who's a chemist, do you actually think you're going to compete and win at these games? <laughs> um, but we love to play. Because, uh, no, I don't know if I'm going to compete with those folks, but we have a good time playing those games and engaging with those. But also, if you kind of came into our family one of those times, you might maybe, just on occasion, find a time when maybe my attitude might be getting a little grumpy. Maybe just getting a little frustrated. A little bit. You know, just a little attitude issue going on. Because for some reason, even though they're, they're random parts of the game, they seem to be all working against me. The cards aren't coming out right, the dice aren't rolling quite correctly, and I just might be having some kind of attitude going on, maybe, just on occasion. Question is, why is that? In fact, recently the question was asked to me, Don, why is that? And the follow-up question, which is even worse, is, and what do you think is behind that? And, and I had to admit, and did spend some time even this week, kind of wrestling through, like, what is going on? And if I'm honest, if I search my own heart, I, I love my own appearance of competence. I, I love to be in control. I, I love to um, have make sure everything is fair, which means it's going in my way. I, I love to win, and more importantly, I, I love to not lose and, and look good. And to be honest, it's all about me. It's the love of Don. Well, surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, this week as I'm working on this sermon about loving God and his commandments and loving others, these things were prompted in my heart and soul. Um, because the way we act and the attitudes we portray show a lot more about us and our loves than sometimes we care to admit, don't they? So as we get to this section of 1 John, uh, John's going to go through a few key themes. He's going to summarize a little bit of these first four chapters that he's looked at. And he's going to give us, I think, some encouragement. And even as we've talked about here over the weeks, some confidence as we walk with Jesus. Some of you called this the test of a believer. So if, if you're someone here this morning who is 
1 John 1 says, believes that Christ is the Son of God, uh, then hopefully these words will be an encouragement to you and maybe a challenge as well. If this morning you're here and think, well, I'm not really sure about this Jesus, or I'm not sure about my perspective or my relationship with God, I hope that this morning you'll see that as we talk through these, um, this is going to give you a better insight as to what a Christian is. And that it's not a set of rules and duties and obligations and not a morals or rules to follow. It's not just being a good person, but being a Christian is about a relationship, about a love relationship. So John 15, uh, 5, 1 John 5, 1 through 5, we're going to look at John's themes. We're going to look at how we keep his commands. And we're going to look at our victory, where there were overcomers. His themes, God's commands, and our overcoming. Let's pray. Father, would you now use your word, use my word, Spirit of God, intercept and apply them to our hearts, that we might understand your truths from your word, we might understand how they apply to us, and we might be changed people because of what you're doing in and through us. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as I was working on this passage, I was thinking, I wonder if John is, is reminiscing a little bit about his time with Jesus. That Laura read this morning those sections from uh, that, that upper room discourse. Jesus is telling his disciples, you know, abide in me and, and you'll bear much fruit. Abide in me. If you do that, you'll keep my commandments. I want you to love God. And, and so John is kind of, I think he's kind of flashbacking to what's going on in that upper room that last, that last night before his Savior, his Lord, passed away. And he's done that throughout this book, and as he gets to this last chapter, uh, he remember, reminds us of the three themes that he's talked about a lot in this book. The themes of belief, of love, and his command. Belief, love, and command, all because we're born of God. He summarizes his argument this way, to believe the incarnation involves birth from God, and to be born of God involves loving God, and to love God involves loving his children, and therefore to believe in the incarnation is to involve loving other people, to love God's children. In fact, let me even read the whole short passage. Verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, and when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You can see my scratched all the notes. I can't read them, but I just kind of printed out and I circled all the beliefs. I squared all the borns. I highlighted all the commandments. I uh, triangled all the loves. Over and over again, he reminds us of these things. He said, to be a Christian is to be born, born of God. And when we're born, we're not born into a set of rules. We're not born into a system. We're born into a relationship, right? It's a love relationship. The first love relationship is with the Father born into a love relationship with the Father. He loves us, 
and we love him. And if that's true, he says, therefore, we love others as well. We love others who love Jesus. That means, you know, the person sitting maybe next to you here in church, maybe your family members. It means you're going to love the people in this church. Ambassador, we love each other. But you also love people in the community, keep people in the world. If I might be so bold, people who you don't agree with, people who you don't have the same perspective with, people who sometimes you might not view the world the same way, but if they're born of God, you are to love them. That's part of being in this relationship. It's part of being a believer that you love those people. And if I could, I'm taking a quick kind of doctrinal tangent here for a second because of the tense of the verses here in verse 1 are very important. The word believe there is in the present tense for those of you who like grammar. The word uh, born of God is in the perfect tense. So a better reading of this is whoever is believing that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. The point is this, that continual faith is the result of a new birth. It's not the cause of it. Christians don't keep themselves born again by believing and might lose their salvation if they stop believing. On the contrary, their perseverance, our perseverance in the faith, gives evidence that we have been born again. Faith in God grants regeneration. Think about Ephesians 2. Paul says, you are dead in your sins and transgressions, but Christ made you alive, born in him. And we cannot lose that. Once a baby's born, they can't be unborn. Once you're born spiritually, you cannot be unborn spiritually. You can't lose your salvation. And some of you might be thinking, okay, well, belief, what does belief mean? And there's a whole sermon there, but belief, oh, the story, John Patton was a missionary to the South Sea Islanders back in the late 1800s. And he was unable to find a word for the word believe or trust or faith. He was trying to figure out what to do, and he's in his study one day, kind of translating and working, and when one of the locals came running into his office, slumped down in the chair exhausted and said to Patton, it is so good to rest my whole weight on this chair. Patton says, that's it. And he used that idea. Faith is having your, resting your whole weight onto Jesus. And he translated that in his New Testament and went on to bring a revival to that ethnos, that people group that nation that Jesus tells us we are to, to make disciples of. Because believing is putting your whole weight. So if you've been here an ambassador for a few weeks or if you've been here an ambassador for lots of years, to be honest, that's a really good question. Are you believing in Jesus? Are you putting your whole weight resting on him and what he has done for you rather than resting on yourself or your abilities or your righteousness? Are you resting on him? As we think about this section, James Boyce summarizes this first little section about this test of a Christian. There are three tests of a Christian, he would say. The first is love. Love both for the parent and for other children. The second is a test of obedience. If, you, if love is divorced from obedience and the commands of God, then it's not love. So John 
immediately goes from love to if you love God, you'll keep his commands. And the third test is that is expressed as the idea of belief. This section is interesting. John, 1 John 5, 1 starts with belief and verse 5 ends with belief in the Son. Those are those themes. Those are tests. You can test yourself. But let's transition. Let's talk about those commands and obedience. So what does it mean to obey? Okay, when I say children, kids, adults, when I say, you know, you've got to follow those commandments, what comes to mind? How do you feel? I've been working on that how I feel question a lot. How, how does it make you feel? If I'm honest, as a firstborn rule follower, commandments kind of puts me under the pile. It makes me think of duty, responsibility, following the rules. We read the Ten Commandments earlier. Oh, I'm supposed to live like this, right? And it seems heavy. But that's not what John's saying. Now, the Ten Commandments, God's laws, are important. The, the Old Testament, Romans says the Old Testament is a, a tutor. The law is a tutor. It's a teacher. It shows us this is how you are to love God. This is what God loves. This is what a life following Jesus looks like as a tutor. It's also a tutor shows there is no way we can do that by ourselves. I cannot live up to the law. I fail it time and time again. I'm helpless and hopeless to try and do that. So as a tutor, the law is helpful. The law is also meant to provide for us and protect. It's not this overwhelming, don't have fun, you can't do that, don't do that, that's bad. God's law provides for us and protects us. Parents, you know the the rules you make for your kids are to provide and protect them. So the, the law is good, the commands are good, but John here, I think, is talking about rather that is because those are intellectual, he's talking about the power of love. I don't know if you guys follow the great, uh, this, the philosopher of the 1980s, Huey Lewis. I think he got a little bit of that when he talked about the power of love. He said, the power of love is a curious thing. Makes one man weep, makes another man sing. Changes a hawk into a little white dove. It's more than the feeling, it's the power of love. You don't need money, you don't need fame, don't need no credit card to ride this train. It's strong and it's cruel, and it's strong and it's sudden and it's cruel sometimes, but it just might save your life. That's the power of love. Now, I don't think Huey was a theologian, but I think he kind of got truth. Better, I think, uh, as you read this passage and study commentaries time and time again, the commentaries mentioned, and one of my favorite writers and passages or teachings uh, of Thomas Chalmers. Over 200 years ago, he wrote one of the most famous defenses of this truth that is, love is the power to change us. The title of his sermon was The Expulsive Power of, the new, of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Piper used the illustration this way. He said he was once asked a trick question. Imagine if I was in a lab- scientific laboratory, maybe like my daughter's, you know, have all the latest machinery, all the sophisticated lab equipment, and I wanted to get all the air out of this bottle. How would I do it? You know, you think about a vacuum sucking out air. And, and get, sorry about that, and get some of that out. Maybe I kind of crush it 
and get all the air. How do I get all the air out of this? That's not going to work very well. Better. What would work to get all the air out would be just to pour water in. And then all the air would come out. That's what Chalmers said. That's the point of his famous message. He asked himself the question, how is the human heart freed from the love of the world? How does the, the world love in my heart removed from the soul, bottle of my, the bottle of my soul? This love is not a duty that one performs, it's a delight that one prefers. It's an affection before it's a commitment. He says there are two ways you might remove this controlling affection from your heart. One is to show that the world is not worthy of our affection. It will let us down in the end. And that's true. And God's word teaches that. The world is not going to satisfy. We sang satisfied. I put it off my team in the last minute because we thirst for ages and for different things that don't satisfy. Only he does. So the world is showing that's true, but that's like the vacuum. That's like trying to get the air out of the bottle. The other way Chalmers talks about is that God, to show that God is vastly more worthy of our heart's attachment. That this awakening to a new and stronger affection that displaces the former affection of the world. And that's like pouring God's love into the bottle. Hence, the expulsive power of a new affection. Chalmers specifically says, my purpose is to show that the constitution of our nature, how you're built, well, the former method is altogether incompetent and ineffectual. And the latter method will alone suffice for the rescue and recovery of our hearts from the wrong affections that domineer it. Now the firstborn rule follower says, can't I just be more disciplined? Can't I just kind of read the law, read the commandments, and just work really hard to do them? But this 40-year believer in Jesus agrees with Chalmers when he thinks it's futile to try and suck the sinful pleasures out of the human heart with the pump of fear or duty or obligation. If we do not put a better pleasure in their place, one might think that humans have the capacity to use willpower and resolve to stop loving the world. But according to Chalmers, even the strongest resolve is not enough to dislodge an affection by leaving a void. That's what John's saying. When we love God, we obey his commands. It's natural. It's the love of God expels the joys and the heart for the world and makes us move towards his work. Okay, what, what's, what's the air in your heart? What's in your life? What is it that wrestles and, and fights with God? Love of the world, the idols of our hearts, our own sinful attitudes and actions. John in, in 1 John chapter 2 says it's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. Can I give you a minute? What are yours? 
What are the things that wrestle God's love from your affection? What are the things that you focus on more than God? It might not even be a bad thing. Years ago when the kids were little, Annette and I would occasionally play golf. And for me, though, I didn't play very much, but every night to fall asleep, I would play this golf course in my brain. I'd kind of go through it, hole one, downhill. There's a sand trap on the left, good drive. It's kind of down there just past the trap, uh, seven, maybe at eight iron into the green, up just a little past it, uphill putt, back to the hole, a little short, put it in par, that's great. Part number two, it's a par three, right along the river, the tree hanging over little seven iron onto it, up just short of the green, kind of pitch it up close, that's good, put it, and I'd kind of go through. Now, to be honest, when I play the hole, the, the course the next time I get to about the fourth hole, and someone say, how do I play this hole? I'm like, I have no idea, I'm always asleep by now. <laughs> but, but in that practice, God convicted me at a point that my heart, the world, golf, was more important to me. I was falling asleep to golf, not falling asleep to Jesus. There's nothing wrong with golf, but where was the affection of my heart? So I stopped rehearsing the golf game and started reading uh, this little book, Handbook for Renewal. It's a series of uh, verses that set my, my affections, hopefully in a more appropriate place. This is why this last fall and some of us slowly this season have been reading Gentle and Lowly because we want to fall in love with Jesus and know him. I would suggest another book if you like those books and those types of things, Piper's Seeing and Savoring Christ. It's a great short book to, to win our hearts to think about our love for our Lord. Well, John, three, uh, John 5, verse 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. And when I read that, even still sometimes I go, Really? His commandments aren't burdensome? It seems like living the Christian life is kind of hard sometimes. It's kind of difficult. Why did, why did John say that? And then I had to think, why did Jesus, in his teaching, said, You know, Take my yoke upon me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. So it, it can't be. Jesus said it's not burdensome. God's word says it's not burdensome. Commentator Hebert says this, love prompted, by, love prompted obedience is not a crushing burden that exhausts the believer's strength and destroys his sense of freedom in Christ. He finds that new life in Christ makes obedience possible and has implemented, implanted in him the desire to do the will of God. Steve Cole, Stephen Cole says this about his commands not being burdensome. He says, this does not mean that obedience to God's command is always easy or effortless. The warfare terminology of overcoming and victory shows that obedience is often a battle. But the world, the flesh, and the devil are formidable foes that we must constantly fight against. So in what sense are God's commands not burdensome? Well, it's one, because we're a, we have a new nature. We have been born again. The old has passed away, the new has, new has come. We are different. Two, it's not burdensome because it is motivated by love. I do things that I love, 
And again, that sometimes shows my heart, but I do what I love. And thirdly, and John doesn't talk about it here, but Jesus did in that passage, up in that upper room, that he has sent his Holy Spirit to help. Jesus talked about abiding me and bearing fruit. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You'll do all these things. And he said, I'm leaving, but I'm going to send a helper. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. If you are resting your whole weight on Jesus, God's Spirit has come to indwell you and empower you to live and follow his commands motivated by love. Now, there's a whole sermon on the spirit-filled life and what that looks like, but that's why these are not burdensome. But how do we cultivate that love? How do we cultivate that love? Okay, I'm reading Gentle and Lowly. I'll go read that book, Seeing and Savoring Christ. How do we do it? Well, how do you cultivate your love with others? Well, you spend time with them. You talk to them. You listen to them. You ask them good questions. You try and meet and anticipate their needs. You share likes and activities together. You serve them. It's the same with God. You spend time with him in his word. You ask him questions in prayer. God, why is this? What about this? And you talk to him and tell you what you want and need and desire and love and care for. You serve him, and in serving him, you develop your love and care for him. Each of us probably has different ways we cultivate that love. Again, let me have you think. What's best for you to cultivate your love for Jesus? Is it reading? reading good books, reading God's word? Is it music and song and singing? It works in your heart? Is it being out in nature and seeing God's creation? Is it looking at art that displays the wonder and the glory of God and his beauty? Is it being in relationships with others, others who point you to Jesus, not others who are just fun and you have a good time with, but others who ask you questions about your love for Jesus? How do you cultivate your love relationship with Jesus. Let me encourage you to prioritize those. Make room in your schedule for those to develop your love relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ, empowered by his Spirit. So we've seen his themes, right? Belief and love and commands because we're born of God. We've talked about his commands not as a duty or obligation, but because of the expulsive love of God's, our affection for God, because we love him, it pushes out the loves of the world and brings in my desire to follow his commands. Thirdly, because of that, we overcome. We are overcomers. Verse 4. Everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That's great news. It's really good news as we struggle against the world. We are overcomers. Great definition I read. Overcomers means to conquer, to be victorious, or to prevail in face of obstacles. Overcome describes the quality of a true believer who may stumble and fall, but who God always picks up and he continues onward and upward in the power of the Spirit 
motivated by victory that Christ has won. We're overcomers. Talked about John reminiscing. Later in John's life, he would find himself in exile on the island of Patmos. When God's spirit empowered him to write this book, Revelation, Jesus talks to him, and Jesus says, say this to the seven churches. You remember, some of you may have read that or heard that. Seven churches, they're not all doing great. They're going through struggles and trials and temptations. There's hostility against them. But you know what? In every, to every single church, what Jesus says, you have overcome. Every single one of them. We may be struggling. It might be difficult. But be encouraged. Jesus told those churches and he tells you, you have overcome. The tense there, a little Greek, uh, a little uh, grammar for you. The tense there is the present tense, which means that these saints are continually living victoriously, even in the midst of their tribulation and hostility and failure. What's the world? If we overcome the world, briefly, Arthur Prink said this about the world. The world is the direct antagonism to God and his people. Any one thing which draws your heart away from God and his authority is for you, the world. Whatever lessens your estimate of Christ and the heavenly things and hinders practical piety is for you, the world. Be it the cares of this life, riches, receiving honor from men, social prestige and pomp, the fear of man, lest you be dubbed as peculiar or fanatical, those things are for you, the world. It's the stuff that fills your bottle. That's the world. So let's pour God's love into it. How do I overcome the world? George Everard, in the late 1800s, gave us a few reasons few ways. To overcome the world is to not direct your course by that of the multitude around us. Ever since the fall, mankind has been going astray. The streams have been running in the wrong direction. The men choose to follow the world. To overcome the world is not to walk in the ways of the world. Secondly, to overcome the world is to rise above the allurements which it has to offer. There are things in the world look good. They look shiny. They look fun. They look like this is going to satisfy. Read that song again. Look to the things that we something, sometimes think. Don't allow the allurements of the world. Don't rise to snatch those, to pick those up, to engage in those. If we were to overcome the world, we, we must not be wholly engrossed in the daily routine of duty. We must not be engrossed in the daily routine of duty. Your job is important. Loving your kids is important. Going to school and doing your schoolwork is important. But that cannot be your master and your focus. Jesus must be your master and your focus. And those things are your servants to serve and please him. And lastly, to overcome the world, we must patiently and meekly bear the cross that may be laid upon us. Again, it, it's a battle. Christian life is not easy. Life will have difficulties. 
over and over. But we have overcome the world. Don't give in to those. So let's go back to that board game that I'm playing, right? Maybe my attitude might be not quite what it should be. As my heart, I kind of notice it rising. My attitude's kind of getting bad. My tone of voice as I comment on the game is not the best, but just hypothetically speaking. And so God prompts me, maybe through the question of my wife, God prompts me, why is that? What are you loving? And I'm thinking, I love her more. I love the companionship and the competition and playing the games. I love being here with my family more than I love myself. Or God make it true. When we're born again, we believe. And as we believe, we love God and therefore love others. And we're therefore motivated because of the expulsive love of God to obey him and to follow his commands. As that's true, we become overcomers. Would you pray, help me pray, that as God prompts, as God's spirit prompts you, when you notice the world is acting its way out in your life, when we're loving the world more than we're loving the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, would we remember his love? Would we cultivate our love for him? And would we overcome the world? Let's pray. Lord, you are more beautiful than gold and silver and diamonds. You are more wonderful than anything the world has to offer us. Teach us that. Remind us that. Lord, help us. And would you cultivate that love that we have for you? Not because we want to be obedient, but we know that our love brings obedience and that brings you glory. <coughs> glory to the Father. Glory to the Son. Glory to the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.